Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. Hello and welcome, everyone. Welcome back to the China Shop. Come on in. We got an exciting bonus episode for you today. Uh, with me, as always, is Kyle, creator of FinancialNeptitude.com. How are you doing, Kyle? Good. I feel like we just did this. We did just do this, but, you know, that's, that's an okay <laughs> thing. Uh, and, and with oh, yeah. us today, joined, we're very excited, we have uh, George Papazov from Trade Pro Academy, TM. Uh, how are you doing, George? Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, very dangerous for me to be in any kind of china shop. I do everything forcefully without any tactic. Uh, that's so. Uh, you fit right in. You fit right in. <laughs> uh, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you guys for having me. We're gonna have a great chat. I'm excited about it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself then? Uh, what do you do? Like, what's your trading strategy? How'd you get involved in it? Uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I started trading in 2001. Uh, my parents immigrated to Canada, where we still live at the moment. I'm in uh, Toronto, actually a suburb west of Toronto in Mississauga. Mm. Um, but you know, on a more like broader scale, we we immigrated to Canada. My parents gave everything up they they had in Eastern Europe to come here in this country. You know, I've always kind of hustled. I always looked for ways to make money on my own terms, on my own schedule. You know, working for somebody wasn't really what I wanted to do for a long term. And back in the day, you know, that was kind of nuts in 2001. Um, the way entrepreneurship's evolved now to work for yourself isn't even perceived to be crazy. But back then I was crazy. Right. So uh, I got into, through like financial education, I got into the uh, trading desk at Scotia Bank. It's one of the big six banks here of Canada. Um, there I started in customer service right in 2009. So, you know, at the in the meanwhile, from 01 to 08, I was writing financial blogs, putting out about a, a bunch of content, trading currencies. And then 09 hit, you know, everyone was losing money. Oh, yeah. It was really difficult. Like, I had phone calls that were very dark, people telling me <laughs> that they were going to take their own life. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, jeez. Oh. Really? Yeah, we had to dispatch, like, police and compliance. Oh. Yeah, it got very dark. And so, Oof. I'm sitting there having these calls, and at the same time, I'm putting out education, telling people... You know, in fact, I was warning them of this impending collapse on these over-leveraged products. Mm. And then I'm dealing with it. I'm like, I'm letting people down. So I really quit. I became a trader in 2012 for Scotia, officially licensed. I was customer service up to that point. And then I quit the bank in 2016 to pursue doing this full-time. And what we do is we empower and educate individual investors to help them take the approach of professionals, but apply it to their independent trading. Mm -hmm. You don't have mm. to be in a goldman sachs to trade like a professional trader you could mimic a lot of the characteristics and behaviors so is your are you more of a day trader then or short term long term like what's your your typical strategy that you uh you go after today oh man i've kind of done everything and, <laughs> and anything i've <laughs> i've traded everything except cryptos to be honest with you but <laughs> i started out with currencies uh then i did options and then we a trade pro academy you know uh we have a couple traders that are on on the books so we trade both options and futures. I actually run the futures day trading front. So I'll trade things like equity indices, S&P 500, uh, oil, gold futures as well. But all of it is day trading basis. So I'll wake up in the morning with cash. Mm -hmm. I'll put on some trades, you know, in the first two hours of the session, 9 to 11 a.m. Um, sometimes I trade later, but it, the later I trade into the day, the worse I'm trading. So I like to finish within two hours. And then when I'm done finishing cash, hopefully more than I started with, 
and then I go to bed without any risk. So that's kind of my approach and, and strategy to trading. Oh, yeah. There's nothing worse than uh, having a long weekend with some office contracts that you don't know what's going to happen Monday morning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing like this job to appreciate a Monday, right? Yeah. Like you love Mondays in this job. Like, here we go. <laughs> oh, that's funny you said that. Yeah. That's uh, kind of yep. interesting, too. You said you started with uh, currencies and then... What, it's like the the backwards way. Most people start with stocks, then go to options, then into futures and forex. Like I said, I'm surprised I'm I'm invited to a China shop. But like nothing, nothing in my journey has been easy or, or traditional. You know, it's like I'm I'm kind of a good motivational story for people because if I could do it, I honestly believe anyone can. Like I, you know, I've gone through basically the roughest route that you could take. Mm-hmm. You know, anything but the most polished approach. And so I started with currencies because that's what my dad had known. He introduced me to trading. And, you know, at the time, you got to think 2001 to be able to trade online. I mean, brokerages were charging around $40 trade for stocks, right? And you guys remember that you've been, you know, around the industry for, for as long as me, given our age. It's like, it costs so much more money to trade stocks. In fact, to trade stocks, sometimes you have to have an account with like minimum equity requirements of 50,000 plus. Mm -hmm. It wasn't mm-hmm. something a lot of individuals were doing. So I started with currencies. You know, that was easy. The pound was one of the first one I traded, uh, GBP, USD, Crossbear, and then gold as well, XAU, USD. And then went to options because I'm like, look, I like currencies, but I don't want to either be long or short. I want to have the ability to like massage or work those positions. And that's mm-hmm. what got me interested in options is that continuous risk management you mentioned the the commissions actually uh that kind of does lead into another question that i had about uh but i don't want to derail us dan did you have anything to follow up on that before i jump ahead no i did i did think of your question though yes okay so that was one of the things that i think you uh, in the email that you sent us is uh the the commission free trading that everyone's experiencing these days like uh, we all know there's no such thing as a free lunch right so how are the, the investors actually paying for that when they're not seeing like a, a typical dollar charge? Yeah. You remember, um, did you guys watch, what was it called Tiger King, I think, on yeah. Netflix? Mm-hmm. That crazy documentary. Yeah. Remember how he was making pizza from like scraps and from like a Walmart trash can? Right. Like, you know, in a lack of a better of analogy, that's kind of what commission-free yeah. trading is. It's like, if you think about it, if you're not paying for something, if you're not paying for a product, you are the product. And, you know, that's always been my belief about a lot of things that have created value in the last decade. Like any social media, basically, right? It's like, how do we go in and post something about our our day? And then this company's worth billions of dollars, but we don't really pay for it. So it's like (laughs) commission-free trading when it first came out. Like if you look at how brokers make money, it's always one of three ways. In fact, usually all three of these ways. Mm -hmm. Number one is commission. Uh, Number two, it's currency exchange. So clients calling, I got 100,000 US, flip it to euro and wire it to my account. And then number three is margin lending, which is like overnight lending of long-term positions to earn a percentage for short sellers who borrow the stock. And and so these are the three traditional routes. The brokers I worked with was approximately one-third distributed across those three categories for their their, uh, total revenue for the year. So when you look at commission free, okay, if you're not paying commission, you're killing one third of the revenue source. Right. How are you going to monetize that? And when you're not paying commission, you're actually a cost center. You look at Robinhood, the more trades that you place, the more you would think this company is doing better because you're giving them more business. But in actuality, the more trades that are placed, the more costs that increase for the brokerage. Hmm. And so how does Robinhood make money? 
they take those orders and they sell it on the back end to the same hedge funds that a lot of the traders are trying to bring down. You know, if you succeeded in bringing down Virtue, the Citadels, those big companies that make, you know, obviously an enormous amount of killing, that Citadel once said, Ken Griffin on an interview said, we haven't lost money. We only lost one day in the last six years. I listened to that. I'm huh. like, he just admitted he's doing something illegal. Like, who doesn't lose money in this business? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we like, never lose. Never, never. Yeah, it's like, that's, that's how you say I'm doing something illegal. You, just, you say that one statement. <laughs> Anywho, like, I don't know. I don't want to slander them. They have resources to, yeah, no, right. you know, go after us. Yeah, so just, it's a joke. But <laughs> look, look at Citadel, Virtue. These are the companies that are actually providing the commission-free trading because they're the ones that are paying for the order flow. Paying for order flow means, you know, when you put in an order to buy GME on Robinhood, you know, that order is sold for a fraction, like half a cent to these dark pools, to these hedge funds that take the order and they'll mark it up by a penny and then sell it through. They'll either trade ahead of that order, they'll match that order in a way that's profitable to them. That's so why they pay for it. That's exactly what we uh, were speculating. Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think one of the stats that I had uh, heard, God, it was a couple of weeks ago, is that uh, the average stock is held for like less than a second. It was some fraction of a second. So they, what that means is like every time a stock is sold, that means it's changing hands multiple times a second, right? Yeah, and you look at GameStop on that one day when one of the 475, actually it wasn't 475, it was the day it hit 100, mm -hmm. I have the chart open here, it was on January 22nd, the total volume was 197 million shares. On a stock with the like, 71,000 shares total, I think, right? Exactly, <laughs> 71,000 share float, that's losing $1.5 billion dollars a year <laughs> trading at 475. It's like, that day to me, nothing made sense, it's like, I, I've been trading for 20 years now, and that's a day where I felt like a noob. Uh, I was like, all right, nothing I know is really working in, in this situation. So, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating discussion. And I think that, you know, with Robinhood, one of the big learning lessons here is that when you're, look, when you're buying stuff, you want to be cheap, right? Like if you're going to buy a gift for your girlfriend, the exercise is spend as little, as much, as little money as possible with the most amount of satisfaction to her, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Where those two intersect, that's, a, that's the perfect gift. Yeah. My wife is listening. I'm probably in trouble now. But with, in right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> with investing, though, you're, you're hoping to buy quality, right? Investments don't depreciate. Things that we consume go in one end, out the other. So we're motivated to save. But with a broker, I always advise, look, don't find one that's cheap. Find one that matches your trading personality. Mm -hmm. If you need quick execution, find one that executes quick. If you're shorting, you need a share float, find one that has a lot of share availability. You know, this is one area you don't want to cheap out on. Right. And, you know, the other thing to, to Robinhood is like the gamification mm. of it. And when you look at how it's presented, it's, it's like click here and win a free stock. Find out which one you're going to get. A little like spinning wheel, like wheel of fortune. Yeah, yeah, the, you know, yeah. the confetti whenever you make a good trade. <laughs> Whenever you deposit money. Yeah, yeah, like none of that actually helps your mentality. <laughs> like none of that helps. It's turning something and making it look like it's easier than it is. And then that's how we get these situations that hurt a lot of people. And it hurt me to see too, because I love to see young people getting in. Right. But I hate to see this outcome. Yeah, that was the one thing I was most afraid with this whole GameStop situation is that 
it might lead to people becoming disillusioned with it and thinking that there's no chance for you know the retail investor and yeah you know it's something that we love we want to make sure as many people get the chance to experience it as possible right dan oh yeah absolutely i love that uh so many people mm -hmm. have so much access that we haven't had before. It uh, only helps the entire country the more financially savvy people are and the, and the better invested they are. You know, everybody wins. Absolutely. Throw in a once every hundred years type <laughs> uh, plague <laughs> event, sit everyone at home and give them more money than they've ever seen in the right? form of, you know, extra <laughs> stipends to the unemployments and stimulus checks. And then now suddenly you've got a lot yeah. of people trying to trade. Right. <laughs> you got time, you got money, and you got like a desire to do better because right. you're in a pandemic. And, you know, if you look at this even further, how it became a movement, you also have the motivation to go after somebody or to take away your emotions on, right? Like we've been locked up and restricted in our movement, restricted socially. Mm, the worst yeah. thing for us as human beings is to be held in these conditions, you know, like a prison in our own mind. That when this came out, this was the tool to vent out some of that uh, emotion. It was the opportunity to take it out on somebody. And I got a glimpse of that as it was happening. And I know that ends really bad. It was all over Reddit. I mean, that was the majority of the people that were holding it through the, the entire time. Most of them were, you know, these are my shares. You can come fucking take them from once you apologize to my grandpa or, you know. Yeah. It became emotional and personal. I actually had to take a couple of weeks away from trading after this whole mm -hmm. thing kind of settled down because not just the, the emotional roller coaster of GameStop itself. I mean, during that whole time, there was any stock it seemed that had a, a high percentage of short was just going through the roof and that was like a large percentage of the stocks that i had been kind of playing with lately so i mean i was seeing like 40 yeah. percent gains in a day and i'm like god damn this is not normal i <laughs> my expectations are <laughs> not right anymore <laughs> yeah I, I i made some best buy option calls uh that week GameStop was go gamestop was going on that uh it really like the success wrecked my head like it shouldn't have been that easy like you shouldn't buy it one day and <laughs> yeah, sell it exactly. the next day for 800 percent. that's not a normal thing yeah but you know what's dangerous about that is the people who are just starting oh, out assume yeah. that this is what it should be like right and then it's like now they take that 800 percent, and they're looking for yeah, like yeah. a company to do a thousand next time because what does everyone want more money right. in every trade yeah like 800 percent became nothing it's like let me look for a thousand two thousand and i think this is where things became unglued yeah. <laughs> In the expectation and the sad part is you know reddit as a community when you look at you know who's actually so here's one thing that a lot of traders it takes years for them to learn once you buy something right let's say you buy a stock like gme you own it you might think that it's going to the moon but to get out you're a seller right and so this is one key lesson that once you get long you're actually a seller yep and the problem is that on the way down you know the same people who were saying you know diamond hands to the moon we're probably selling it to the late stage rally people who got stuck at the top. <laughs> and while while it was a movement of sorts against the hedge funds, ironically enough, it was Reddit against Reddit when it came down to the to the downside. Right on the upside, everyone's making money, but you also got to ask yourself when yeah. everything's going up and everyone's diamond handsing, who are you buying from if no one's selling? Right. There's got to be somebody selling it to you, right? So these are things that. I think are golden learning lessons for anyone that went through this. You're a stronger investor because you've gone through this event. I think any penny lost 
and participating is is worth the education that you're willing to take from it. You're not willing to learn and do it again, then it was a waste of money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you learn a lesson from it and you apply it to the future, it's education. How much do we pay to be doctors? Mm. And we can't make 800% as a doctor, right? So it's it's a good learning lesson, I think, as a whole. I think uh, you said something on your podcast, the episode I listened to uh, last night, um, about you're talking about a loss, like a big loss that you'd taken, and then hoping that that was not the, the biggest loss you ever take. And then, like, your mentality on that, I thought was just fantastic. You're basically saying, like, yeah, I hope that this number now becomes meaningless to me. <laughs> I hope that, you know, the next time I'm yeah. swinging like a 10 times that amount loss because that means that my portfolio has grown by 10 times in order to be taking a loss like that. And that's just money that I'm paying for that learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you're, if you're always focusing on managing risk, you know, if you get, if you know when you're going to get out before you get in, if you have set exit points, set loss percentages for every trade, you know, then losses aren't a bad mm -hmm. thing. And so I hope to be able to take bigger losses because that means the account balance is growing. I should be taking bigger losses over time as my as I grow as an investor, as a day trader. Yeah. So you know, I think a loss in itself, loss capital, like does so much damage to our psychology. Mm, yes. But then we go out on a Friday night and we spend four hundred dollars on alcohol <laughs> and we do that, you know, every weekend. <laughs> But, you know, there's, right. there's value there in the night of the moment. So that's the real losses for me in my life. It's like, if you're out here investing and losing money, the question is, did I learn a lesson? And if you're able to extract something from it, you know, you've paid education. And I don't know one person, and I've been doing this professionally, like on the bank side, you know, I have a lot of friends who are still in the professional business. I don't know one trader who started out who was green and then went, you know, from the zero to hero overnight. Yeah. You know, you see a lot of our industry is bad at this. They'll show you all these gain statements and like, ah, look how much I made, look how much I lost. And, you know, where were those statements on the way down? A lot of people kind of hid behind that. And so one thing you need to understand is a lot of traders who are in this business professionally will share learning lessons, they'll share ideas, they'll share analysis, they'll share sources. Very few people share results mm -hmm. because you don't learn anything from my results. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that was the danger. It was just like everything started to go and then people were showing statements. Then people got fear of missing out. They FOMO'd in and then before you know it, we topped out. So I guess that uh, answers my next question then if it was over or not. Because <laughs> uh, there's still a significant portion in the, the Reddit community that's holding on saying that this isn't done yet. Um, short interest yeah. reports have come out recently. Uh, I think there's another question about how accurate those numbers are. Well, so here's the interesting part about this, Kyle. Yeah. Let's say you bought it at 400 because mm -hmm. some people bought it at 30 right? Like, let's remember how GameStop started. It was a bunch of people on Reddit who had the idea, holiday sales of the PS5 and new Xbox are going to be fantastic, yep. right? Let's take part in this investment. It's a nice short-term opportunity. It was a great idea. You know, I, I like that idea. And then it became, oh, my God, there's more short positions than there is shares. Let's make them pay for that. But... What if you bought 400 at $400 a share, it's down to 52. It might not be over, but you don't have any more money to buy anymore right. at 52. It might be cheap compared to what you bought it. But when you've already bought, you're not really a market participant anymore. Yep. It's who's the next person to come in with the next dollar to push it higher. That's an excellent point. And hey, stimmy checks are coming. So there might be some of that capital and availability. Um, but I'll tell you this, a lot of people learned a lesson from that too. Yep. And if you bought it at 375, 
and it's trading 52 now on the way up when it hits 375. I don't care how diamond your hands are. When it hits 375, because of that whole roller coaster, you're going to probably start to think, all right, maybe I should sell it at break. Yeah. <laughs> right. And- so, uh, I mentioned just a second. Oh, sorry, Dan. Go ahead. I'll let you get some questions in. Uh, I was, I was going to say, uh, we, we've blown past it a little bit, but uh, we were speaking earlier about expectations of gains and how, like, yeah, you know, trading, trading options to make 800% in a day is just completely bonkers, stupid, unreal, un- unrealistic. Uh, what, what, do you, what would you consider to, to tell a beginning trader, like, what's a reasonable expectation of, of being able to grow through through trade i say we do every other day trading uh because i'm not looking to buy and sell on the same day but i will sell the next day or the next week uh what what do you think uh what's wh- where should where should expectations be set uh for for someone that that's learned enough to be to be playing the game but uh but still not not a seasoned pro yeah that's a you know that dan that's a fantastic question because i think this is where we start to unpack like the real learning lessons mm-hmm. of, of the last month or so and you know, so when our traders start out and they're brand, brand new, because I think there's people who are listening who are brand new and then ones who have some experience now with this event. If you're a brand new trader, it's think about this. It's your day one on the job. You know, any expectation you have on day one is wrong. Like, you don't really know yeah. what you don't know. So just right. showing up with expectation to something new is just, it's a losing proposition. You're never going to be right. And that's just going to kill your confidence. So if you're brand new, rather than expecting the profit, put an expectation of learning. Be like, look, today I'm going to learn just a little bit more than yesterday. Evaluate yourself on what you learn. And then that's going to be a lot more profitable to you in the future than to set an unrealistic expectation, which you're not going to hit anyways. And now you're disappointed in terms of how you're performing. Mm. But in reality, you're probably performing better than 90% of people if you look at how you're learning and progressing. So for brand new uh, traders. Yes. You know, you you set a target of, I want to learn. If you start to do this thing and you're getting a little more consistent, you have some experience a couple months behind your belt. You know, in our options trading room, when we have a 30% gain, uh, we we take one third of the position. Some people take off a half. And then what we do is we take the uh, stop loss, put it to break even, and then we turn it into a runner. So the goal here is, let me make 30% of my capital because to new traders, it sounds like peanuts. 30% 30% is a great return. <laughs> it ain't nothing to laugh no, at. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe I got to say that, but it's 2021. 30p is, is really good. So you take initial at 30% and then you let your runner work for you. You know, let your position work for you, but not at full risk. Is take the risk off, reduce it, get paid, and let the rest of the position make you risk adjusted returns. It's not about making a million dollars. You know, on the professional business, when you're funding traders in a proprietary environment, you look at two traders, one that's up a million and one that's up, let's say, $50,000. The people would think that the one that's up a million would get hired, but that's not true. They'll ask to look at the variability of your returns. Mm. They'll ask to look at the risk. And so you got to think about it from a professional industry. If professionals are hiring traders who have risk-adjusted performance, you should try to replicate that by having risk-adjusted performance yourself. And so that's a great question. The quick answer to that is if you're new, expectations are only going to hurt you. They never help. If you have a little bit more experience, set a number, 30 to 
each stock varies. Some of them are more volatile than others. So, you know, that's where your experience comes in and you can actually now set an expectation. Uh, we like 30%. A lot of the names we trade will have about a 30% movement in the options market. And then we lock the rest of it for a runner. Uh, I like that. Uh, I think uh, one of the ones that I have been doing lately is I usually go with half. If I see it double, then I sell half my stock and then just keep the rest because I figure you can't lose anymore at that point. But I felt like that was probably too high, but I'm glad to hear that 30% is actually pretty reasonable. So <laughs> I will be adjusting yeah, my points. Yeah, it's a good start, yeah. right? I'll be adjusting my points for sure. <laughs> hey, if you're trading and like you're making 100%, if you're seeing options going up 100 on a consistent basis, you know, it's nothing wrong with even going that high. It's just when things drop to 60%, there's no reason that you should still be targeting 100 when the average returns are 60. Right. right? I think this is where the trou trouble happens yeah. is people are like, I want 100%. It's great that you want that. Can I swear on this podcast? Just oh, yeah, yeah. emphasize yeah. the point or no? All right. You might want you know 100%, but the market doesn't give a shit what you want. It's going to wherever it needs yeah. to go. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it should be clear. That's not a hard set rule or anything that I do. Like I'll definitely take a 20% even if it looks like it's kind of tapering off at that point. Uh, just if I hit that 100% yeah. point, then I'm selling half right there. And then uh, the rest of it to me is now just, you can do whatever it wants. I don't care. I could sell it, you know, for two cents and then still make money on it. Yeah. And, and sorry, I wasn't like targeting no, no, no. just the newer listener who's starting yeah. out. I know for a fact that your risk management strategy is more like dynamic. Mm -hmm. You know, one number doesn't mean anything. It's let's see what the market gives us. Mm -hmm. But it's it's also nice to have a strategy and approach. So, hey, if you're seeing that 100% are hitting, why not, right? You could peel some off at 100, then trail some. But then we always need to be ready as traders to adjust the new market conditions. Because what the markets will do every so often is they'll put in a certain trend until everyone notices it. And then when everyone notices that trend, it's done. It'll uh, never work that is way. Is that again. why uh, it works till it doesn't? <laughs> Something I've been finding? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay. hey, look, the stock market is like more efficient than any one of all three of her ex-girlfriends put together. Yeah. It's separating capital <laughs> from like overly ambitious, uneducated people, you know, like even myself included. <laughs> when I started, you know, I, I don't, I've had a lot of girlfriends before. I had to say that a little bit quieter, the wife's downstairs, but the market knew how to take the money out of my pocket the quickest. And it's like that by function, right? It's like that by functionality. Like even look at um, the hedge funds versus GME traders. So they almost brought down Melvin Capital. We don't know yet. We're going to see what ends up happening. But then there's other hedge funds that made $700 million plus, right? right? In the same type of event. Yeah. So it's like, there's these short-term exploitable moments, but on average, you know, it's harder to win than just pumping one stock, getting out of it. And, you know, I, I hope that your listeners and anyone that traded didn't get burned enough and learned their lesson cheap. But even if you learned it expensive, it's still a lesson. We control how much we pay for lessons in this market. Well, and you, yeah, I think we were pretty clear that if you're going to, when this whole thing was going on, that this was not something you put your life savings into. If you want to take a bet with some of your earnings that you've already, you know, some of your profits you already made, you know, have at it. But anybody that was, the lotto ticket, anyone right? who's asking me if they should invest in it, I said, don't put anything in there that you're not willing to lose because you probably will lose it. Yeah, exactly. Right. I bought my shares as a badge of participation. I don't expect to ever sell them. I want them to sit in my account and be like, yes, I I've was been, there, sonny boy. I've been GME. waiting for, uh, for it to come <laughs> back down. Because uh, I actually believe in the GameStop long term. I like what they've done with getting uh, Ryan Cohen on, on the board and 
uh, the flexibility of that company. A company that makes, you know, one to two billion in revenue every quarter, you know, that has to have some value. It's got to be worth more than, you know, $8 a share, which it was before. But if Ryan Cohen can turn this yeah. around and turn it into the Amazon of the gaming world, which is what his plan is, uh, you know, I plan on buying back into it again as soon as it, everything kind of stabilizes. But you know what the craziest part about that is? Is that GameStop didn't really profit much from this. No. I was actually shocked to see that GameStop executives held on to all their options. I got to tell you, that's like fantastic management. I like, think they had to. You look at the CEO. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> I mean, look, I'd be tempted. You oh, know, yeah. If, if you see some of the gains on Reddit, imagine being an executive having mm -hmm. like all these shares. Like, oh my god! Oh, even what do I do? <laughs> Ryan Cohen's stake, I think, was worth three billion after he, you know, uh, at one point, and he held on. So yeah, kudos to them. I don't know if it was a legal obligation or not. I think it's more of a PR thing. You know, they finally got oh, some great man. PR if they were to just start cashing out at the expense of. You know this perceived movement going on. Kudos yeah. to them, because temptation's there. You know what? Two billion, <laughs> take it out as profit. Who cares what PR nightmare you got? You go to Dominican, you live a great life for summer. You know what I mean? It's. Uh, it, I, I like that. I th I think GameStop demonstrated that you know their management mm -hmm. is is like exceptional through this event. And so, but now it goes back to a longer term yep. picture, right? We know that it's not going to hit a thousand overnight, but now it goes back to like, hey, let's look at some of the fundamentals and the avail or the potential for this company to actually earn revenue the picture gets reset back to a longer term plan versus overnight pump and then yep you know see if we can make a million bucks you mentioned uh not profiting off of it uh -huh. amc actually managed to didn't they uh i thought i saw they converted about 600 million in debt and staved off bankruptcy um you know what to be 100 percent honest with you i haven't i haven't looked at that or, or kept track of it uh on amc i'm i'm like a my trading style isn't as much fundamental. It's more so like get in, make some money and get out, which is surprising they didn't participate in mm -hmm. this. But I'll tell you what, when I saw it going up and the mentality of it, I I didn't like it because it kind of made a little bit of a mockery of our business. And, and it, look, I say this with, I, I'm ex super excited to see each and every person who was part of the GameStop rally uh, participate in this market because it was newer traders. Right. And I love to see new people come into this business. It's done wonders for my life. And I think everyone should invest. But on the flip side of that, I don't think a lot of people realize this. There was almost a systemic collapse in the markets. I'm talking 30% downside yep. based on my calculations of the entire stock market just because of these stocks. Because you bring down a hedge fund, <laughs> guess what? That hedge fund's got capital that it borrows from another hedge fund. You're bringing down a second one, a third one. You screw all those hedge funds, and you're like, I won, but now your grandma's pension is done. Your mom loses her job. S&P drops because these hedge funds lose that money. What are they going to do? They need to have a margin call. They got to come up with money. What they do is they start selling the Apples, the Facebooks, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Amazons. Yep. yep. And that's, that's why you see these short float stocks pump up, but the whole market's just losing confidence, deteriorating, and getting hammered. We were on the verge there of something chaotic happening, and uh, you know, I remember I was sitting this looking in the trading room, and I had like a like a wave of sadness to me. I don't know. I've been in this game a long time, and it's just like I was like, I know how this is going to end. Mm -hmm. I didn't buy it, but I wasn't stupid enough to short it either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually glad I wasn't in the industry like you were in 2008, nine, because. Uh I actually look forward to those dips because to me that's just another chance to to get things at a discount. But yeah, you you make a good yeah. point because they forget about all the actual lives that are tied to this. 
man, like it's, you know, it, there's a fine line between it being a business and then seeing financial ruin. Mm-hmm. Like in 09, I was doing really good with my day trading, you know, and the money was there, but you go out and the whole mood wherever you go is just doom and gloom. Right. You know what I mean? It's like you did good, but it doesn't serve you to be good yourself when everyone else around you is doing crap. And this might seem extremely like mm-hmm. happy guy, you know, happy go lucky. And you might, people might not believe this, but the money that I was generating wasn't enough to offset the pain I was seeing it causing the other people. And I had to deal with it. I was on the phone, you know, right. I heard people's stories, people that would call me to get quotes on a daily basis, because back then there wasn't as much availability as information. Like there was no trading view, or they had to usually call a broker and I'd pick up the phone and give them a quote. And people who I knew about their families and all this stuff from phone calls just getting absolutely annihilated. And, uh, you know, we, we forget at a certain point that the people who have the biggest interest in financial markets are usually the, the people we forget about the quickest. Pension funds, all right? Like a lot of teachers unions, like, you know, a lot of people who are heading into retirement have the most amount of exposure. So, yeah, we almost brought the system down. But at the same time, we almost brought the system down. You know what I mean? That's Yeah, who's that going to hurt? Yeah, do you feel like this was retail-driven event, or do you feel like there was some institutional money uh, pushing the other side of the, the short on GME, buying up, knowing they'll cause a squeeze? I, I, thought, I think it was both. I think that's a really good question, and there's no way to really confirm it, right? Um, I know that yeah. retail was responsible for igniting it, and I wouldn't be surprised to see some hedge funds seeing an opportunity to screw one of their own to kind of jump in as well because hey it's a competitive industry mm-hmm. right at the end of the day yeah it's like money just competes and so i think it was actually both of them i think early on the hedge funds who got you know more who saw the opportunity first probably put some money into it but they were probably the ones selling on the way down too right. rather than than holding it right um Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I honestly think it was it was a two part participation there for sure. So the, what's GameStop short interest at right now? I think uh, the report just came out uh, on the ninth. Thought it was somewhere between forty and fifty percent. Yeah, which is still high traditionally, right? Anything above thirty percent is like a high short float. Now how, the fact that it got over a hundred percent was ridiculous. My my question to you then is how accurate are those numbers? Uh, is there? I know that they're delayed. I mean, the numbers that come out on the ninth are actually from like the 29th of january so there's like a two-week delay in there already well like this whole thing with having to report these positions you know it's it's an honorary system but it is also legally uh binding as a large spec trader you do have to report these obligations and you know this short float interest is a combination of everyone that's short it's not just the hedge right. fund industry it's other people who open shorts so it's reliable to an extent but when I see it as 50%, it isn't. The exciting thing about any stock having a short float over 100% is that theoretically, there will never be enough shares to close right. that short. The price could get to infinity, right? Because if you send mm-hmm. everyone chasing to close the short, they can't cover 122 apples worth if there's only 100. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's where the excitement got in. Like, hey, let's actually take this thing to the moon. Um, and you know, it's that 122 figure. You look at how that's possible. That's the brokerage industry to blame, yeah. right? Like what they do is naked short selling. They'll actually allow somebody to short sell without finding a client who already owns that in their book. So when uh, GME started to ramp up, 
and everyone started to get excited. Some people wanted to short it still early on in its rally up. And they called their broker and their broker says, you know what? I don't have anyone that has it that I could lend it to you for a short position. But my God, I could make a lot of interest on this. I'll tell you what, I'll just let you open a naked short. And that's how you create shares out of thin air. <laughs> you know, and the SEC is now looking at, oh, let's go there and start to hit these Reddit guys. Like, you know, this is a coordinated pump and dump. Let's see if there's any legal action. Let's get that deep effing value guy. Let's call him up for a testimony. But we're not talking about what actually created this as a short squeeze. This started as a good investment. You know, buy it into the retail season, get some consoles coming out, let's make some money. But now it's like, we got to ask the questions of the brokerage industry too. How are you lending out so many shares that you didn't even have? You know, we got to point fingers. I think that actually kind of leads into my next question then, which is about the uh, the fails to deliver. Uh, and seeing uh, things floating around on there on Reddit about there being a high number of fails to deliver on GameStop. So my understanding is that is uh, the number of shares that were, um, let's see, sold but could not be delivered, I think. Uh, could you explain that, like what that actually is? Uh, they were, they were yeah, so naked shorted but never covered. Exactly. So it's like you're, you're naked short. And so what ends up happening is you have your clients who are short positions who then want to cover their short. And they're looking to buy it, but now you got to find somebody willing to sell it to you. And so as a brokerage, you're in a what we call in the industry an undisclosed short position, which means, yes, your clients have these trades, but you as a brokerage now have underlying risk. You have liquidity potential issues that could happen. And so they're out there trying. I mean, if you guys read on how the hedge funds actually close out their shorts, I thought that was genius. I mean, we could chat about that in a second, but this is where brokerages end up being net short on their whole book. So if you think about how they do business, you have Peter who owns 100 shares of Apple. And you got Larry. Larry's absolutely nuts. He wants to short Apple. So what happens is Peter lends the shares to Larry for the short. And so you got Peter 100% uh, position long, Larry 100 share position short, but they're offset mm -hmm. because Larry owes the shares to Peter. They're tied one to one. Net effect of the brokerage is zero. But that's not the situation they put themselves in, right? And I think that's where regulation could look at it and be like, how did you guys get yourself in these undisclosed and naked short positions? How often do you do this, right? And like, let's stress test this because if you're going to run and operate on this business model, you know, you could have caused one hedge fund to go out and that's not a problem. You know, I'm all, if you're taking risk in the market and if you're taking a lot of risk, you should be able to blow out. You know, it's like... That serves you yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? It's like, it's the rules of capitalism. You want to go do something boneheaded, you got to pay the price. But if it's something yeah. systemic that brings out one, then two, then three. So what I would say here is that like, you know, if, if it's just one hedge fund that went out of business, great. You know, I'm all for it. But it had the potential to hurt the people who are our parents or grandparents who are relying on the stability of the market mm -hmm. for their passive income portfolios. Right. And I think... That's what has to be looked at from a regulator standpoint. You know, you look at that the the deep fucking value guy on on Reddit. I think there's going to be some interesting situations there too because one thing people don't realize is he was actually licensed as an advisor at the time that he was promoting this on the forum. And so, oh, yeah, I did see something about that. It's one thing to be just like John from like the trucking business talking about on Reddit. It's another thing to be a licensed professional in the industry 
because when you do get licensed, you go through testing, you go through like ethics, regulatory stuff, you know, training by compliance. There's a process to it. And so I think they're going after the wrong people, number one. But number two, there's got to be a review in how these brokers were able to create out of thin air 22% extra shares than there were. Now, go back to the deep fucking value yeah. uh, point that you just made about him still being licensed. From what I was reading, and I don't know if this is correct, maybe you can correct me. Uh, it sounded like there was only like a short overlap over the time he was employed with this firm versus the time when he started doing uh, his post. I think I thought I'd seen it was only like a week or two. I'm not 100% certain, but I, I could imagine the overlap is the time between him making a couple million dollars and then quitting. <laughs> What? Right. It's like, <laughs> if I'm gonna if I'm gonna work from home, I could still be an advisory business. Like, holy crap, this is working. I'm gonna quit. But the point is, you started opening the trade. What? Well, yeah. He, even though it's only a few week of an. Sorry, he started ahead. posting about that back in June, and the the play that he was making wasn't even had nothing to do with the short interest on it. He just believed in the company as a whole, thought it deserved more value right. based on the fundamentals. He took some profit. He made an enormous amount of money. He could get some good lawyers. He made about thirteen million, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he'll be good with it. I'm sure he'll he'll prosper and uh, come out the other side. But they are looking for, for somebody to take down, right? Yeah, and it shouldn't be him. Yeah, I agree. It, you definitely need to take a look at the like you said, the naked shorting, these fails to delivers that are through the roof on GameStop. I feel like the financial system for the first time like felt the effects of the retail trader winning, right? Because the system as a whole, you know, we like to believe it's rigged against the retail trader, but that's because a lot of people start out before they're prepared. I think you could access the same information as the system. And I think this is the first time they felt a serious threat where, look, the everyday person is amassing a lot of power. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think that's, I think if everyone decided to do some investing on their own, you got the potential to change the shape of what the world looks like tomorrow. Never mind making. 10 30x on gamestop think about the influence you have on what products you support what industries what trends you know like at the end of the day a vote in politics is less meaningful than a, how you vote with your dollars that's how you really shape the future and i think in the end of all this it's fascinating to see young kids getting into this market i just wish there's a little bit more oh, yeah. of a learning curve before they got to this moment <laughs> Uh, man, I swear you must be reading our notes or something because uh, you keep segueing into our I'm questions <laughs> here just beautifully. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, you mentioned the retail investors thinking that the system's rigged. Um, like, what obstacles do we actually have as retail investors to overcome when we're going up against the institutions? It's a fascinating question. There's uh, one of the things that's easy to kind of point out is technology. Mm -hmm. They have more money and they could build technologies, et cetera. But I think the one part that really helps the institutional crowd win is experience and knowledge and i think it's also the one thing that you can't really short change right like you can read all the books in the world but none of the books had gamestop in no. it because it never happened yet <laughs> and mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's like there's something to be said about screen time and i know that you know institutional people have more money they could buy bigger technology they could buy better widgets than us but at the end of the day they still have to execute on the open market and so I think the one advantage they have that, that is real and not perceived is the information. They can actually hire people and be like, look, we don't want anyone with less than 30 years experience. Now you're going to go up against a firm with people with 30 plus years experience. And if they have that kind of money, they could do it. So I think one of the, the biggest advantages they have that we could replicate 
is information and screen time. So you're not going to be able to take down or compete against somebody with a billion dollar portfolio today. But Warren Buffett didn't make his first million till he was 40 or something ridiculous like that. Or his first billion, it might have been. I, I think his billion, yeah. That. He started with and, five million, I think. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. First billion <laughs> until he's 40. And now look at him. Now, like, I, he doesn't even know how much billion he's got because you don't have to after a certain point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Right, right. No matter where you're starting, I think if you start slower and look to, like, build information, like, nothing replaces screen time. So to the retail investor, you know, we might feel like we're disenfranchised because I'm a retail investor too. But I could tell you this you know, you can win. You can win against bigger money. You can win against people in this market. And you don't have to do a short squeeze moment like GameStop. You don't have to serve it to them in one day and take their head off. You could start by putting in little jabs over a longer term. Take the body, right? So I think, you know, the retail, yeah, exactly. Hit the body, wear them down. You don't have to be biting ears (laughs) off like Tyson. (laughs) (laughs) Just go for the solid, consistent jabs. And you're not going to, make any highlight reels in that fight, but you're going to take them out. And that's what matters at the end. It's like successful investing for the long term is not sexy. It's not exciting. It's calm. It's rational. It's risk management focused. And those are the things professional traders use that I think retail could incorporate today. And by incorporating that, you will start to beat them. I mean, look look at the money management industry. There was Literally outflows this year. Hedge funds have been losing since 2016 because they keep shorting the market. Right? Instead of getting people managing your money, now these index funds are helping the everyday person invest in every stock instead mm-hmm. of having to pay 3% of their fees to have their portfolio managed. Yeah. We're already winning. We've shaped the way finance yeah. looks. Right? It's just we got to keep winning with information in the long term. And one thing I want to mention, the last thing here, I know I'm kind of giving you some long-winded replies, but I get passionate. I've had a lot of caffeine. That's all right. Is the hedge fund industry is interesting as a target, right? Because you guys remember the movie The Big Short? I actually you didn't had, like, see it, but I'm familiar with yeah. the concept. <laughs> yeah, it's like they described how the housing market got brought down in like a cool, like millennial way. You know, like uh, I forget the actress's mm-hmm. name, but she's doing it in a hot yeah, tub, yeah. like explaining what a CDO is in a fun way. To and we look at that, and we're like, wow, these hedge funds were able to call the top and they were able to bring justice to the market of what these banks are doing. Fast forward, you know, seven years later from what happened. I mean, the movie didn't come out seven years ago. It came out late after the big short actually happened. But fast forward a few years later, now the hedge fund is the one taking the brunt of it. And look at the hedge fund as an industry. I think Melvin Capital um, unfairly is is personified as the hedge fund industry i think there's so many other hedge funds out there who actually serve a very key function in markets you know they prevent investors from buying crappy stocks that are frauds by spending and you look at this you say yeah obviously this company is going to publish a crappy report because they're short but at the same time think about how much money it costs to research something like that like those companies like sino forest that were complete frauds that costs millions of dollars to get boots on the ground, get drones flying, get reports, buy like tips from people. By the time you purchase the report, you're like $10 million deep. Mm. You should make some money if you're right on the short side. You make it go. I mean, shorting, I think, is still, it's not something that I'm against like a, an Elon Musk. I think it definitely serves a certain purpose. I think the problem that the majority yeah. of, of the everyday people have is when, uh, you know, you keep seeing 
things popping up where it looks like the hedge funds are, are shorting these companies that are actually, you know, not bad companies. They're just shorting them into the dirt and causing some of these things yeah. to go out of business before they even had a chance to really succeed or fail on their own merits. But uh, I mean, that's yeah. not going to be everybody. Obviously, there's going to be bad apples in uh, just about you know, in any industry. And I think that's the only part that at the end of the day we could bring up is that in both sides of the picture, no matter how polarizing the situation is, in both the retail industry and then the hedge fund mm. industry, there's people that mean well. It's just we pick the examples of the, you know, look, we're, we had fun at, at Trade Pro and we came up with an idea to come up with a sweater that says Melvin Capital Risk Management Department. It's not funny with that. <laughs> Somebody there screwed up. Yeah, uh, Let's have some fun yeah. with it. <laughs> But there's other hedge funds who made money who were like, hey, I agree with, with the retail guys. Let's squeeze these people's head. Like they got themselves in a position they shouldn't be in. Let's make them pay. And so as polarizing as it was, I think it was a good event for the, the world to learn. I'm happy that it stopped short of causing a collapse because I thought we were close. Like I was modeling things out. I'm like, we're like three, four days out from massive margin calls. I think it might have actually been closer than that, uh, according to one guy I was reading from. I mean, he said we were like minutes away when Robinhood put the kibosh on allowing the GameStop trades to continue. For Robinhood, for sure. I don't think Robinhood will ever tell you this. And again, I don't know this. So legal financial mm. disclaimer, you know, do your research, blah, blah, blah. But I think they were close to going bankrupt. Here's a CEO saying we, we don't have any funding yeah. or liquidity issues. And then six hours later, a headline on Bloomberg, Robinhood uh, draws down a billion dollars worth of their credit lines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting for a company not having liquidity issues. And then raising another $3 billion <laughs> a couple days later. Which is more than they've ever raised at a cumulative basis. Right. So it's like they're having an issue. And I think you know, Robinhood is sometimes unfairly uh, hit hard as well on the fact they restricted I think they either had to restrict or they would have like blown out. Because a lot of people don't realize this. When you're using a margin account, when you buy a position, you actually don't own the shares. The shares are owned by the broker right. held in trust under your account. So if Robinhood would have continued to allow these orders to go through and they couldn't post the liquidity requirements with their clearinghouse, they would have had to go bankrupt. And so instead of lose all the money for everyone who, you know, you would have got pennies to the dollar as a return. I'll tell you this. Thank God I wasn't in that position. That's a hard decision. Yeah. To Either way, right? Well, yeah, there's no right answer. The, the other side of that, too, is that uh, I think Citadel is the, the, the clearinghouse that uh, Robinhood uses that they send, like, what is it, 40% of their orders through or the majority of them? Is that correct? Yeah. Now, Citadel also has another yeah, exactly. hedge fund that they operate, too, right? Oh, man. Citadel has a hedge fund. Right. Like, Citadel at times represents 40% of all stocks executed okay Lord. because right now there's more volume trading on the back end than there is on on what's called the lit market like new york stock exchange etc well, here's where the optics look really fishy to somebody like me like a lay person i see from what i understand like the reason why robin had gotten the situation that they were in is because the the margin requirements from the clearing houses basically were raised uh when this whole craziness was happening is that correct yeah yeah for sure it's because of concentration risk, right? It's like you, you have so many of your new dollars going into these companies that if they do turn, you're going to lose. Like they have a, a VAR model, value at mm -hmm. risk, and that's dynamic. It's like all your stuff is concentrating in a few names. If this happens, this is way riskier of a situation you're in than you know three days ago. So now we need 15% of that money as an example to guarantee these positions. That's a couple billion dollars. Now, the question I have is, is that uh, is that regulated or is there any, or can they just come out and say whatever requirement they want to? Is that all an internal thing? 
So here's the interesting part. There's very few clearing firms. Right. So in the United States and in like in any market place, there are more brokers than there are clearing partners. Meaning that every like multiple brokers will use the same clearing house. And you know, the dynamics of how that works, you know, it there's a regulation component of capital requirements and then there's an internal policy. So the regulatory and I don't know the, the limit of what it is, but if you have a concentration risk you're going to be required, you know, by the financial services. And these are all positions that are insured, by the way, in the mm -hmm. U.S., right? So you're required to have certain liquidity requirements. But a broker or a clearing firm also has the ability to ask for excess of that from a policy standpoint. So legally, you're mandated to raise some. But then internally, as a policy, you have some wiggle room as well. When we were a brokerage, you know, we, we would make decisions on margin requirements. We'd be like, holy crap. The stock is getting a lot of news, a lot of volatility. Let's go from 30 margin to 60% because margin is the amount of money that you're actually putting down, right. not what you're borrowing. So then that would cause more liquidity to come into a broker account. So there's those two things that are at play. There's what's mandated by law and then what's policy internally. And a lot of brokers use the same clearing firm. So if one clearing firm goes bust, you know, these brokers are going to have no one to clear with. And that's where the systemic <laughs> issue almost occurred. Okay, yeah, I can see that being really bad. <laughs> yeah, it, it was close, but you know, they have recourse too. How did you get yourself in a position that right. you cleared 122%? Yes. Like that's figure that out. That's some questions I have to be asked. Uh, we're starting to run a little long here, Dan. Uh I wanted to at least uh get get a chance to ask. Okay, so yeah. so we've been talking about uh GME and 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 squeezes and what whatnot. Uh I wanted to shift gears into what uh, what indicators do you look for in in when you're when you're going to open a new position? Like what what tells you like okay this is a good time to buy? Yeah, so the way that I do it is I trade futures, and um, options also has this component to it. I study order flow a lot. So in a way, the short squeeze and short interest to me is like my bread and butter. This is what I do, except I do it on a different basis. Like I'll. In a futures position, what I end up doing is starting out with levels. So I don't use any indicators. I don't use none momentum, no MACD, no RSI. I use price action. So I'm looking for the structure of the market. I'm looking for higher highs, higher lows. Mm. That indicates it's an upward market or bullish. And then I look to pick a retrace level where I could get long with some little risk. So the way I do that is I set levels. Be like, hey, look, we've had a run up to this price. It should pull back and stop at this level. But I go a little bit further because should is words like famous last right. words. It should do this. Boom, you get run over. It didn't. Oops. <laughs> so what I then I look at is order flow. So price gets into that level. And instead of putting in a limit order to buy, I look at the order flow. So what I'm looking for is how are these orders flowing through the market in real time? Are they trading on the bid or the offer? Because if you trade on the offer, you're a market buyer. If you trade on the bid, you're a market seller. And so I'm not only looking for that high probability level, I'm looking for the orders to start drying up on the sell side and start picking up on the buy side. And that's how I qualify mm. my when moment. I wait for, let the price come down to my level. Now let the sell side wash out and the buy side show some momentum and then get in. So I'm never buying the low. I'm always buying, you're buying a the, little the, bit higher than... But you're waiting for the trend to, to reestablish. 
Exactly. I'd rather pay higher for a high probability trade than get it at the lowest tick. Yeah. Be the one holding the bag if it fails. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we've figured that out ourselves that uh, you're never going to get the peak or the bottom. So just wipe that from your head now and find points that yeah. you're happy with. And if you did, it's luck. You know what I mean? Everyone gets lucky once in a while. Even a broken clock works twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> we are broken. <laughs> Hey, like, I've been there, right? The only time I get the highest tick or the lowest tick is when it's a stop loss. <laughs> <laughs> if I have a stop order in there, I'm going to get that low tick for sure. You know, it's like, yeah, great. I got stopped out on the low. Yep. And then people, people always say, oh, well, they, you know, it happens to me as well. This part of the it game. happens all the time. It's like, <laughs> yeah. It's a pain in the ass. I got, I got a tip for that if you guys want. Like, if oh. some of your listeners are getting stopped out yeah. mm-hmm. and then the price turns in their direction, a lot of the times we try to buy it too early because we think we're going to miss out on the opportunity we're scared of missing the move mm-hmm. but wherever you want to get in you have an entry and then a stop loss below right on the long yeah. side flip it and put your entry where your stop is because if you keep getting stopped out and it goes your direction i know it sounds simple almost over too simple i know it could even write a, sound a little stupid but if you keep getting stopped out put your buy order where your stop loss is and put your stop loss a little bit lower you're just being slightly impatient. Uh, mm. Definitely. And that alone is true. Definitely patience is a problem of mine. That's a great uh, great point there. Yeah. Uh, I've yeah. I've ended up picking points and then finally just turning it off and walking away and figuring, you know what, I'll get it by end of day. Yeah. There's a saying in our business, if you like if you like the 200 weight, you'll get the 190. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, man, That's I had awesome. some yeah, I had some Canadian questions to ask you, but it sounds like you're you emigrated. So are you are you a true Canadian? I am, yeah. I've, uh, since ninety, I don't know when I wrote the immigration. That's like early to mid nineties. All right. Uh, okay. So yeah. yeah, my wife was uh, wanting to know what the deal with craft dinner is. Is it just the box? Is it just the box of craft macaroni and cheese, or are you guys adding stuff to it, or what's the deal? <laughs> <laughs> this is a funny question. So it's like. Craft dinner is like the Canadian version of spam. Well, uh, no, you know what? That's not true because because you can make it nice. Um, I, I used to, I got through college on craft dinner. I'm not knocking mm-hmm. it. I remember I showed up to my, um, what was what was the name of that? It wasn't calculus. It was like derivatives in math. I forget the name. Anyways, I was in engineering before I switched to financial stuff. And I would show up with like a pot of craft dinner <laughs> in my like pajamas to class at 8 30 20 minutes late <laughs> so, so i'm not knocking craft it's like instant noodles with just cheese and you know people like it especially people on a budget right there all right next question then uh, french fries do you use mayo or gravy <laughs> oh so canada is where the poutine started yeah. mm-hmm. this is this is this is fact in montreal um so I love fries with gravy and cheese, <laughs> but not always because right. because that's like a heart attack in a right. box. Uh, I like gravy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then the last one I had was uh, what, what's your hockey name? Would it be uh, would it be Zavs or Paps or? <laughs> so the, in hockey, um, I do play hockey. You know, it's a, if you ask like nine out of ten Canadians, right. they'll say yes because they do, and one out of ten is lying. So. <laughs> <laughs> but in hockey we got a way of like putting e at the end yeah. of everything so Donor. my last name would be pappy like poppy because it's papazov or g because i don't like these people calling me poppy i don't want to pay right, that much right. like child care for people's kids <laughs> but 
<laughs> like I'm not your dad. I have a son already. But yeah, Poppy's a good one. Or just G. I, thought, I, thought, I was thinking Zoner or Zaver. 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 Yeah, that's the other yeah. one. You had the yep. ER. Yeah. So you'd be header. Yep. Dan Lisa. Dan, well, Lise? I don't know the Lisa. Uh, Lisa, probably Lisa. Yeah. Lisey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, should we uh, talk about some of your? I mean, we brought it up in the intro, but we let you talk about your uh, your website your youtube channel where people can find you if they want to hear more yeah for sure i'll leave a quick plug here you know i'm a big believer of you should get some kind of education you decide what's right for you you know i'm not i don't do these sales pitch stuff find a community and belong to one it doesn't have to be ours but be a part of a community Mm -hmm. Uh, anyone on the professional side doesn't do this by themselves there's no one who does this and has fun doing it in the bedroom by themselves in the corner (laughs) of the room you know it's like it's not meant to be done this way. So join a part of community, um, any community. At ours, a Trade Pro Academy, we have uh, on YouTube a morning market update. It'd be fascinating for you guys to actually listen to the ones through GameStop. I was sitting there trying to talk to everybody. They like, look, take some profit, get paid. <laughs> like, there's no reason to be trading four seventy five and you're waiting for a thousand. Right. Wait with it with like a third of the shares. Yeah, <laughs> sell, take some profit. Yeah. And a few of our YouTube listeners try to share it on Reddit. It got taken down. I try to, anyways. Oh, yeah. I try yeah. to share the message, but, you know, sometimes when people don't want to hear it, they won't. Probably so, called you a bot. Uh, YouTube is a great, <laughs> yeah, they're like, you're a bot. This guy's from the hedge fund industry. You know, they yep. get, when you have your mindset on anything, it's called confirmation bias. So you only yep. want to hear information that confirms what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Great way to blow out an account. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the way that I do it when I invest, especially for longer term, not just day trading, I like that somebody will tell me, look, by GME. The first question I ask them is, do you own it? Mm-hmm. And they'll say, yes. I'll be like, Great. You're useless. I don't want to hear your biases of why you own it. I'd like to hear from somebody who doesn't, right? It's like, you clearly need me to buy it so you could go up for your position, but let's find somebody who doesn't own it and find out why they like it and don't. That's why I kind of do comparison. I don't know how I deviated here, but YouTube, <laughs> 9 a.m. every morning. <laughs> uh, we have a free video. We have a free video for 10 to 15 minutes. I think that's a great start. We also have a podcast called Mind Over Markets. I think one of the things that make traders successful is their psychology and mindset. This isn't actually an information business. This is a psychology and, and, and mentality business. And the faster you recognize that, the better you'll do. Um, invest in your trading psychology for sure. I think on that podcast, we 100% focus on trading psychology. So those are the two resources I point at the listener to. And um, yeah, you know this industry could treat you really well. Just you got to find the right resources and the right people. Mm. And um, you know if you, you're a retail trader, you've just started out. You, know, you motivate me. You have motivated me to be in this industry for 20 years. I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing it because I'd love to see the retail trader win. Um, if I had to do this by myself, I would have stopped a long time ago. This is a boring-ass business what? to do solo. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry, but this is why you guys got together too, right, Kyle and Dan? It's like, it's, oh, and, it's so crappy to do this solo. You oh, need yeah, someone to talk to about it, yeah. You can have yeah. someone to share, to talk yeah. you off the ledge every once in a while, to share your big gains. Uh, it's definitely a social game. Yeah, I, I bored so many people to tears. I some just last week, my uh, my my partner's roommate asked me something about GME. He's like, "So is GME over or what?" And I started talking. Yeah. Maybe about two minutes into it, she just she just grabbed my arm and she was like, "Dan, 
Stop. He he's heard enough. The the answer is maybe. <laughs> Sounds His like eyes that scene just, in, <laughs> Yeah. It's like that scene in Groundhog's Day. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you mean to talk about the weather? Or are you just making chit chat? <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That's great. Exactly. Oh well, it's been great having you, George. Uh, this has been fantastic. Oh, this is amazing. Yeah. Have to do this yeah. one again. Thank you, guys. Yeah, Priya, we could do a round two, you know, maybe like learning lessons from GME and how to like proceed forward. But you know, at the end of the day, um, I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy to, to chat with you guys. And I'm really happy to see what's going on in the industry. I think taking control of our finances is kind of the best way to gain more control, more influence oh, yeah. in the general economy. Oh, yeah. So you guys keep doing it, you know, participate. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah. yeah, we plan on it. Until someone yep. stops listening. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I love it. We need people like the Kyles and Dan's to come together and to cater to the market. So appreciate you guys for having me on. It was a fun chat. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, hopefully we get to do it again someday. All right. Fantastic. All right, folks. Thanks for joining us uh, for the episode. We, we hope you learned a lot. We're, we're really glad you came along for the ride and hung out in the shop for the whole time. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to have some more exciting interviews coming up uh, week after week. We got a full docket. Uh, and and uh, we'll see here about setting up a, a round two on GME lessons with George here in the future. But until then, I'd almost happy- like to bring him back to learn about some futures. Oh yeah, yeah, we'd love to crack open futures and forex. But there's only so much time in in a, in a I day, know, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, all right, and with that, uh, we'll we'll ask you if you know if if you like what you're hearing, like and subscribe, share, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your pets, uh, tell everybody you know. And uh, happy trades. Bye, folks.